On the show this week, the federal government releases its fall economic update with no bailout for Alberta's ailing oil industry. We'll ask the federal finance minister why not. Then, just how bad is the oil crisis in Alberta and what impact is it having on that province? We'll hear from Alberta's finance minister. And how the West's reaction to Jamal Khashoggi's murder in Turkey sends a dangerous message for journalists around the world. I'm Mercedes Stevenson and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. The federal government tabled its fall economic update late this week. Corporations and businesses will receive billions to help them compete with the U.S. and spark investment here in Canada. But there was no money earmarked for Alberta's ailing oil industry. Oil from Western Canada is at a historic low, selling for $40 to $50 a barrel less than Texan oil is. The unemployment rate in that province is also one of the highest in the country. I sat down with the federal finance minister to ask why his government didn't do more to help an industry in crisis. The most fundamental aspect of this challenge is obviously the issue around how do we get our resources to market. And I think the Prime Minister was absolutely right in saying that this is a, an enormous and urgent challenge. We've moved forward with the decision, which of course was a, an extremely important decision, to purchase the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the expansion. We know that for the long term that is absolutely the right thing to do. I mean, it's the most cost-effective and the safest way for us to get our resources to international markets. In the fall economic statement, you'll recall that we put in place a very, very significant measure uh, to make it much more advantageous for businesses to make investments in the future. Of course, as you know, the oil and gas sector, Alberta broadly, is a, is a big part of our economy. So when we made that decision, we recognized that for businesses in Alberta, this would provide significant advantage for them to invest with confidence that they can have that advantage for the future. But the oil patch doesn't have a capital or an investment problem, it has a revenue problem. So how does that solve that if the problem is the bottleneck getting that resource to market? We of course recognize that the that the sector is in talks, they're in talks with the Alberta government. If there is a consensus from the the industry on on other initiatives that we should be thinking about, we're always going to be listening to that consensus. Uh, our view now is that the most important, the single most important thing we can do is make sure that that Trans Mountain Pipeline moves forward in the right way. That's what we're trying to achieve and uh, recognize that the, uh, the importance of the sector is, is of long-term importance. That's what we've uh, recognized through that purchase. Uh, the Alberta Finance Minister is saying the federal government lives on another planet and that they'd asked for help with putting out oil by rail because that would mm -hmm. be immediate. Is that something you'd consider, buying rail cars to help get the oil to market until Trans Mountain is built? Well, first of all, it's not immediate. Uh, of course, rail does not come the next moment. It, it actually takes a significant amount of time. Our estimate is it might take you know, at least nine months, perhaps longer, to actually get more rail. If that's a decision that, uh, that the Alberta government and the industry wants to take, uh, that, is, that is a decision that can be taken. We've uh, made it clear that we think that uh, doing what we did, which was make sure that we have more pipeline capacity, is the first best alternative. We made a very significant $4.5 billion investment with the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the expansion. Uh, we know that the Alberta government also asked us directly. They but asked that's, us that's going to take significant amount of time, and if the industry is in crisis now, 
why not then maybe look at injecting funds directly into the industry like for example dairy farmers got compensation mm -hmm. uh, bombardier got a bailout you're doing things to alleviate the stress on those who are dealing with steel and aluminum tariffs mm -hmm. why not do something more direct for the oil well industry? in fact I just want to remind you and probably important for you to know that the Alberta government actually wrote us saying that they thought that the idea that we have put into the budget the accelerated investment incentive was the right idea so we actually did get that request from Alberta uh, and move forward as as that was in our estimation but would an you consider issue. maybe injecting money directly into the industry we know how important this issue is we know that the challenge is enormous we understand that the sector that the industry players and the Alberta government are in discussions uh, you know if, if they have some consensus that we should listen to we will do you think that your government maybe should have approved some of those other pipelines? You know, Mercedes, we are, have been really clear that uh, the decision around Trans Mountain was the first best way for us to get resources to international markets. I mean, clearly what we're talking about is twinning an existing pipeline. Our job is not to uh, create hypotheticals, it's actually to try to get something done. And that's exactly what we're trying to move forward with. We've been given some direction by the federal court on how to best do that. So we need to take that direction seriously. But we don't know when there might be shovels on the ground. Well, what we do know is that the only way to make this happen is to do it the right way. So by taking what the federal government has told us, uh, the federal court of appeal has told us, and doing it in a way that actually listens to that roadmap, we know that's the way that we can actually get things done in our country. So we're moving forward with that in the way that uh, we've already identified for Canadians. What do you say to Albertans, and, and some of them truly believe this, and I hear it from them on social media, I hear it in phone calls mm -hmm. from viewers, that the government is ideologically opposed to the oil patch, that they want to see the oil patch dry up, and that's why they're not doing something about it. Well, I think that uh, that's hard to sustain. When we saw that there was a political challenge between Alberta and British Columbia around the Trans Mountain Pipeline, we stepped forward. We recognized that, that was not an acceptable situation. We took a decision that uh, did not uh, have political support all across our country to purchase the pipeline so that we could actually intervene in a way that would allow us to get this done. So that was an exceptional decision by the federal government. I recall being out in Alberta after we did that and people, while they would rather the federal government doesn't own that pipeline, they recognized that that was the best way to get this moving at that time with those constraints. So now we have another obstacle. The Federal Court of Appeal has, has given us some things that we need to work on. We are working on this to get it done the right way and that's, that's the commitment that I'll continue to make. To change gears a little bit and look at the deficit, mm. uh, your government initially promised relatively small deficits. Now we're mm. looking at deficits as far as the eye could see. The argument then was we have to spend because the economy is not great to bring mm. it up. Now the argument is the economy is good so we have to spend to keep it there. Is there ever a time where you don't argue you need to go into deficit? Where we are right now is the competitive situation has changed. So when we came into office in 2015, there weren't a lot of people that thought that the, the international trading environment would be significantly different three years later. There weren't a lot of people who thought that the largest uh, economy right to our south would have a fundamentally different tax system three years later. So what we've done is we've recognized that as the world changes, we need to think about how we can ensure that our economy is healthy for the long term, that we continue to have investments that create jobs, and that's what we've done. We made a choice. We said that 
if businesses have an environment that is advantageous for them to make investments in Canada, they'll do so, and that will create great jobs for Canadians. That we know was, at least uh, from that standpoint, under threat based on the changes made in the United States. This is, we think, the right way to go about uh, assuring our economy strong for the long term. And of course, it's always important to consider the frame. The frame is that we have uh, the lowest amount of debt among other countries, our allies. So we are resilient in the face of challenges, and we are reducing our debt as a function of our economy over time. So it is important to do more than one thing at the same time, be balanced in our approach. And I would put to you that those businesses that are considering investments appreciate the fact that we've ensured that they can make those investments in Canada on a way that ensures that they can stay here and create more advantage for Canadians. Do you think there's a contradiction, though, between <clears throat> telling Canadians they need to live within their means while the federal government goes into debt? There's a, a, an important uh, decision that every Canadian has to make in terms of their personal finances. We recognize that there are Canadians who have too much debt and they need to manage that because that's a challenge. We do have a continuing concern around the levels of debt that consumers carry. We've been working hard to manage that. So what we've done in the mortgage market has had some important positive impacts. It's also important to distinguish that from where the federal government's at. So we're in a situation where we are actually the country with the lowest level of debt as a function of the economy. So you are very clearly comparing levels of debt for consumers that are at a very high level and levels of debt for the federal government that comparatively are actually lower than our allies. So that puts us in a place where we are more resilient than our competitors and in a place also where we can take the right balanced approach. We're going to reduce that debt over time. We're reducing the deficit as a function of the economy over time and we're doing it in a balanced way. The alternative strategy the strategy that some people are arguing would be the smarter strategy is to rapidly reduce it, which would cut services for people, it would increase unemployment, decrease growth, and potentially precipitate the very challenge you, that you're saying we need to be prepared for. We don't think that that's the appropriate approach. Okay. Instead, we're going to take the long-term approach that's proved to work. Minister Morrow, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks. Thanks very much. Alberta's oil industry is in crisis. Oil south of the border is selling for $40 to $50 a barrel more than Canadian oil. And without more pipelines, Alberta can't get their product to market. Now there are warnings that the industry could collapse if that's not resolved. What does the Alberta government want? Joining me now from Calgary is Alberta's Finance Minister, Joe Sisi. Uh, Minister, you've had a chance, obviously, to look at the fall economic update. There's nothing in there for Alberta. You've said the federal government is living on another planet and that you're disappointed. Why do you think Ottawa didn't act to help Alberta? Uh, in part, I don't think Ottawa gets uh, the economic circumstances that are going on in this province. Uh, in part, I don't think they understand that the oil and gas sector, which is the big dog in this province, has uh, been hampered for uh, two and a half years already. Uh, we need um, them to recognize that, to act quickly, and not just to voice uh, platitudes that, you know, there, there's a crisis here. and and things need to be sorted out. Um, 
that's what I think is going on right now. They just don't get it. If we were, uh, say, Bombardier or if we were uh, the auto industry, there would be all hands on deck trying to address this as quickly as possible. Uh, so it, it does feel like there's an un, un, uh, uncertainty um, around what Ottawa should do, but I'm telling you that uh, we are united in this province, that Albertans are disappointed, and we need them to act. Are you going to consider limiting capacity? Because that's been one of the things some people in the oil patch are, are arguing for, that you should produce less oil and that that would be one way to drive the price back up. Well, the, the, earlier this week, the uh, Premier appointed three envoys to uh, go out to the energy sector here, sit down with all of the CEOs as quickly as possible, uh, work with them to get their suggestions and bring them back to her, uh, and then uh, look at, you know, all levers, in, including uh, limiting production, uh, as a way of uh, reducing this differential. Um, it's punishing right now. Uh, the companies are losing money. The only people ben benefiting, as I say, are the Americans who are refining the oil and, and making out like bandits. What Bill Morneau told us, though, is that what they offered in the fall economic update is exactly what you asked the federal government for. Yeah, I did ask for accelerated capital cost uh, allowance, and uh, I'm looking at that now. But, you know, the, the thing that hampers the ability to use that for companies is that they have to be investing in equipment, in, a, in machinery. Right now, it's so difficult for anybody to plan that, of course, because they're not making any money. Um, and and so they don't have any money to spend. So it's a, it's a, ultimately a tool that's not useful at this time. What's needed is take away capacity from this province so that oil can go to Tidewater, oil can go to uh, the United States. We can shrink the differential. And the only way to get uh, take away capacity in the short term is uh, crude by rail. We need the federal government to step up, help with crude by rail, uh, defer those costs. We're going to put money up to do that. Uh, but they need to do that too. As I said, if this were other, other industries in other parts of Canada, we would see a lot more attention. Unfortunately, I just don't think they get the importance of this for all of Canada because so much of the energy sector drives uh, companies across this country and people across this country who feed into the oil sands, either as workers or build equipment for it, and none of that's going to be taking place if we don't have takeaway capacity. If this is an immediate crisis, though, don't you have some kind of a time frame you need to act on? We know one thing that'll help right away, of course, is uh, uh, crude by rail. If we can order the, that traction power, if we can get rail cars to Alberta, uh, we can start to take away over 100,000 barrels a day, uh, and we start to shrink that uh, glut that's uh, remaining in this province uh, that is fueling the, the huge spread in the differential. Uh, you know, we, we really need to see that differential close. The only way to make that close uh, may be that lever of uh, limiting some production may, and some of that has happened voluntarily already, and it, and it certainly would uh, uh, close if we had takeaway capacity from this province, and we need to order that as quickly as possible. We need the federal government to recognize those issues uh, that are going on in Alberta, for not only Albertans, but for Canada. We're losing $80 million a day, and where is that money going? It's going to the states primarily.
Does your government, though, bear some responsibility here? Because there's people in the oil patch who say you were very unfriendly to the industry starting out. The royalties review uh, was something that was certainly very unpopular. The tune of the government has changed, uh, but they feel that they weren't supported by the NDP government. Um, I don't know why that's being said. The royalty review essentially put in place a revised, improved royalty that makes it that is better for industry than it was in the past. Uh, we've been nothing but supported. We have been uh, uh, on the TMX file from the very beginning. Uh, we're, we're trying to uh, uh, support uh, the energy sector in all sorts of uh, improvements, uh, value add here in this province. So we have a petrochemical diversification program. We're uh, giving tax incentives to but Minister, industry do you think you could have been more supportive of building here pipelines? in this province? Uh, with pipelines, yes, you know, pipelines are, are an industry-driven uh, um, initiative, and we've been supportive of pipelines. Um, the federal government is uh, came to the table around TMX, frankly, as a result of the pushing from the Alberta government, and uh, that needs to happen as quickly as possible, though the delays are there. Minister, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. My pleasure, Mercedes. Thank you very much. Last week, the federal government announced hundreds of millions of dollars in tax incentives to support the struggling journalism industry, including a controversial plan to set up a panel of journalists who will decide what meets the definition of news. Conservative finance critic Pierre Polyev condemned the move. Government should not be using tax dollars in an election year in order to set up a, a panel of government-selected uh, uh, individuals who will decide which media survive and which don't. As the Conservatives question the federal government's announcement and its potential to impact the freedom of the press, overseas journalists are facing their own battles, which have been magnified with the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi earlier this month. President Donald Trump has refused to cut ties with Saudi Arabia over Khashoggi's death. I'm not going to destroy the world economy and I'm not going to destroy the economy for our country by being foolish with Saudi Arabia. So what does all of this mean for journalists and freedom of the press? I recently sat down with Ivan Mahana, executive director of the SKI Center for Media. Here's that interview. What's the situation for journalists in the Middle East right now? The Middle East, unfortunately, has been the world's most dangerous place for journalists. Half of the killings of journalists in the 20th century until the first uh, decade of the 21st century have taken place in the Middle East, and impunity is still the norm. Unfortunately, killings have not stopped. Syria, Iraq, Yemen are all conflict zones where journalists every day pay their lives in order to tell the truth, tell the story of what is happening on the ground. But also, targeted assassinations of journalists are also unfortunately a very common uh, pattern in the Middle East. The foundation I run, the Samir Kassir Foundation, carries the name of a very famous Lebanese French journalist who was killed in 2005 in Beirut. But very recently, the whole world was shocked when the Washington Post contributor, Jamal Khashoggi, was killed in the Saudi consulate in, in Istanbul. It shows how much journalists, but also columnists, people who dare to hold authorities to account, have a very dangerous job. And what is the effect of that? If you're intimidating or killing people who question governments? It surely has a chilling effect on journalists. Many prefer to adopt self-censorship. They know the red lines not to cross in order to preserve their lives and their 
uh, the lives of their loved ones. This is why very often journalists in the Middle East does not go that far in terms of investigation, in terms of verifying facts. We have a very complacent uh, press that just copies and pastes the official statements of the government and only some columnists who very often have to travel outside their home country in order to be able to criticize their authorities. So this is why in countries like Lebanon, in countries like Tunisia, where there is some um, leeway for journalists to say what they want, we are trying to transform these countries into safe havens for others who cannot say and write what they truly feel in their home countries and we try to protect them in safer places. So self-censorship is the norm except for very brave journalists who every day face the risk of saying what they need to say. What is the most dangerous country in the Middle East right now for journalists? It depends on the definition of danger. Of course, conflict zones create a very dangerous situation for everyone, including journalists, for every civilian. And journalists are civilians, let's not forget that. So killing a journalist, targeting journalists where they are operating is a war crime. So Syria is the world's most dangerous place for journalists on the ground today trying to cover the conflict. But at the same time, danger is not only about losing your life. Danger is about losing your freedom. Danger is about losing your job. This is why we cannot also exclude all the developments taking place at the economic side of things, where the press in the Middle East, having been funded for years by governments, is very vulnerable to governments deciding to change their plans. And this is why many journalists can find themselves suddenly without a job, just because Iran, Saudi Arabia, Qatar stopped funding the media outlet they used to work for, and it's always for political reasons. You talked about the chilling effect that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi had uh, and can, will continue to have for, for many journalists, especially in Saudi Arabia, but in other countries too. What effect does it have that Western countries have condemned it but really done nothing? This is the, the real problem, impunity. November 2nd, just a couple of weeks ago, was the International Day Against Impunity for Crimes Against Journalists. This is the most dangerous situation today. If crimes against journalists were properly uh, prosecuted, were properly, uh, properly investigated, and if the perpetrators were ever held accountable for their wrongdoings, things would have been different. Unfortunately, rulers in the Middle East, whether in Saudi Arabia, whether in um, Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, all these countries are using some form of blackmail. The world today wants stability, and the Middle East has always been one of the most unstable regions. So in order to preserve stabilities, authorities in the West prefer not to rock the boat and keep the situation stable. The Saudis can use the economy as one of their blackmail tools. The Turks, specifically the Erdogan government, can use the, the migration waves to Europe as one of the blackmail tools. So it's being used in a very nasty way by telling the West, don't truly try to hold us accountable, don't try to investigate, don't try to push hard, otherwise we'll open the migration wave. Otherwise we can impose sanctions on your economic interests. Otherwise we can let some of the more radical Islamist groups operate more freely. This is always used and at some point the West, but also Democrats in the Middle East, but also Democrats all over the world, the international organizations need to step up to the plate and say enough is enough by conditioning aid, by actually prosecuting before the relevant international courts all the rulers who are today committing war crimes against journalists. We have the case of Syria and the Assad regime is probably one of the top killers of journalists in the world. The Saudis are silencing free press. 
the, the mm, Turkish government is one of the world's largest jailer of journalists alongside Iran and Turkey. So continuing with business as usual will not help the free press there. Because without free press in the Middle East, we are bound to be stuck with societies that are not used to critical thinking, that are not used to actually looking into what their governments are doing. Therefore, if democracy is truly an objective, and if we truly want the people of the Middle East to, to attain the levels of human development they deserve, we cannot forego free press. What do you think Western countries should be doing? Because at the end of the day, they're denouncing it, but they look at their economics, they look at their trade with the Middle East and think, mm, maybe we don't want to destabilize, or as you said, concerns about national security too, and needing some of these repressive regimes to maintain that. So, so what advice would you give to Prime Minister Trudeau and other Western leaders on this? First of all, of course, we understand economic interests that push them towards a more realpolitik situation. But they first need to talk about it again and again, raise the issue every time they meet with their counterparts, tell them in their face that this is not acceptable behavior, strengthen accountability mechanisms. I'm thinking specifically about the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and include crime against journalists within the uh, prerogatives of the ICC. But there is also a role to play at home. When Western presidents, and I'm truly thinking about President Trump here, says the, that the media is the enemy of the people. This is a horrible sign sent to every single journalist around the world, especially in countries where the press doesn't have the level of freedom it used to have and it still has actually in the West and in the United States. When crimes against journalists, assassinations of, the, of journalists take place in the EU, Three journalists were killed in the last months in Slovakia, in Malta, in Bulgaria. These are crimes taking place within the EU, which is considered one of the hubs of democracy and liberal democracy around the world. And so far, there hasn't been true accountability, true mechanisms to hold the perpetrators accountable. Same for the Annapolis Gazette um, attack in the United States. These crimes need to be clearly prosecuted with the top level of transparency. This is the sign that the West needs to give that it actually um, walks the talk when it comes to press freedom at home. And this is the image that we, the advocates in the Middle East and in developing countries need to say, you cannot follow their path when they say that the media is the enemy of the people. You have to follow their path when they actually hold the perpetrators of crimes against journalists accountable. Ivan, fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Thank you so much us. for having me. Always a pleasure to be back to Canada. Thanks for checking out the West Block podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple podcast, Google podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block Facebook and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.